Can I ask you what your lucky numbers are? Uh, I'm going to pick 14, 24, 2, 7, and 15. Oh, those are your lucky numbers. Do you know your chances of winning? Slim to none. Slim to none. You're right. Let me tell you, it's one out of 292 million. What do you think about that? I knew it. You knew it. <laughs> your, your numbers are lucky, though. Am I right? I hope so. I hope so. Can I ask you, if you won all the money, what would you do with it? Bunch of hookers and cocaine. Oh, okay. That's not good. <laughs> we were hoping for a different answer. That's probably not the answer that we're looking for. All right. Well, what'd your wife say when you're ready to do that? She said, I don't want to talk about this. And I don't think she really wanted to talk about my business for at least a solid two or three years. <laughs> it's a really good question. I think one of the themes in my career has been... As long as you are good at typing, uploading images or videos, and picking from download menus, you can build a game in anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. Exactly, and I think that that's really important. And I think that's a good hack for anybody. The first nine months or so, I worked in my apartment. My partner lived up in Connecticut. We both worked from home. My wife would leave the house. I'd be in my pajamas. She'd come home. I'd still be in my pajamas because I was just pounding the phone and trying to close deals. I was just focused, focused, focused on trying to get this thing off the ground. So my name is Steve Baer. I am 44 years old. I live in Westchester, New York, just about 20 minutes north of New York City. And I run a company called The Game Agency. Started The Game Agency back in 2007. And so back then there was no iOS app store, no Google Play app store. Games were a thing that people did in their basements, or at least that was a perception. And the whole idea was to think about how do you take games and make them a medium that brands can use to tell stories, that ultimately trainers can use and educators can use to engage learners and really make them useful tools above and beyond what was being used in the marketplace at the time. Okay. And so is there like games that you've worked on that people could download now or that you're like known for? Yeah. Well, so prior to starting this company, I worked for Atari. I was the head of marketing for a number of big brands there. I led up the Dungeons and Dragons, IP, Neverwinter Nights, Driver, Test Drive Unlimited. So I worked on all those and many other brands. What I built today and not on my own, but certainly with a, a really robust team, is a product called the Training Arcade. And so that is a SaaS platform. It is subscription-based and basically allows anyone to create games that they want to. We have hundreds of companies using it today, millions of learners learning from it today. Outside of our core product, we do a lot of custom work. And so we've built a number of games that are in schools and you know, work with a number of the major publishers that basically distribute content into schools, anywhere from early education, sorry, early literacy, math, financial literacy, STEM education, social skills, but those are not downloadable per se. They're all web-based games, but available to students anywhere from K to 12th grade. And so a lot of the games that you create, you're saying today, and I, know, I heard you say you can do some custom stuff, but is it more like education-based versus some arcade games that I might download on my iOS or Android? Well, yeah, it's all meant for educational purposes, but it was meant to be designed with kind of that arcade concept in mind, right? So if you think about what is actually going to get someone to play a game, we often use the term chocolate-covered broccoli, right? You don't want to just have like a quiz and call it a game because no one's going to play it for that reason, right? But you want to make sure that something's fun. So we've built out anything from like endless jumpers. So you're familiar with something like doodle jump, where you're jumping from platform to platform, answering questions, avoiding obstacles, and it keeps it lively. People will download that. They'll play for any given topic. They'll play on average about nine times. 
So there's a sense of stickiness there. We have a match three game really akin to Candy Crush. Same concept with questions before and throughout different levels. We've also licensed the IP for Jeopardy and for Wheel of Fortune. We have the exclusive license or rather the official license for both of those IPs. And we've built out a whole slew of other games. And the reason we call it the training arcade is that these are fun. They're sticky, somewhat in some cases addictive games. And they have not only the gameplay, but they have the points, the achievements, the badges, the rewards, tangible prizes that you can get with them. And it really takes learning and makes it into a fun experience and pulls on both the intrinsic and extrinsic motivations of learners. And by the way, learners can be kids. They can be adults. Really depends on what the content is and where it's being deployed. Well, Stephen, are you ready for my first irrelevant question? I am. Only if you promise it'll be irrelevant. I'm trying to be enthusiastic <laughs> as I ask it. I'm ready. <laughs> so you don't like chocolate-covered broccoli? I like broccoli and I like chocolate, but I don't like chocolate-covered broccoli. I agree with you. <laughs> but I love that term because you look in the marketplace and by marketplace, I mean the training and education space. And I kind of cringe when I see what people use the word games, because in many cases, it's a multiple choice quiz, right? Even one of the most robust products out there, and by robust, I mean, from a penetration standpoint, Kahoot is, I think, in something like has seven, like 75 million players out there. But it is a glorified quiz. And quite honestly, it is a nice, easy tool to use for teachers. And it's free, but it's not a game. And one of the things we saw in the marketplace was an opportunity to take real gameplay and to pull on the motivations of gamers and players and just people, marry that with education. And I feel like we've brought something relatively unique to the market and have been able to scale as a result. And you brought up Jeopardy. Is that what you're kind of best known for? If someone, again, I don't know if you have a couple apps or something that you might suggest that people might be able to download while they're even listening so they can get a feel of what y'all have worked on. Yeah. So the main product that we put out there is called The Training Arcade. If you go to thetrainingarcade.com, you can take a look at it. And it basically is a tool that allows you to create your own games in minutes. I hate using this word, but it's templatized, if you will, right? As long as you are good at typing, uploading images or videos, and picking from download menus, you can build a game in anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. Today, we have 10 different game types that you can choose from. And it's really super simple. We acquired the exclusive license to Jeopardy about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. And it's been a fantastic tool for both educators and corporate trainers. And we most recently acquired the rights to Wheel of Fortune. In addition to those two games, we have eight other games on our platform, 10 altogether. And it's so easy to pick up and play. And quite honestly, it is very motivational for learners and it makes training and education a lot more fun. It makes sense. I did understand that you said that basically y'all kind of have these templates for everyone to make, but I know you also said that you do some customization. So I didn't know how much customization for some people, but yeah, the training arcade, I'm looking at it right now. It makes a lot more sense when you kind of see it. I see the 10 kind of modes or templates, just like a PowerPoint. Exactly. You know, has different templates or whatever. We can go in there and edit it and it seems like that makes sense. So I can make basically a Jeopardy kind of app or game for past podcast episodes where I've asked a lot of ir irrelevant <laughs> questions, I would say, and not with much enthusiasm. So that's what you're saying. It's like we could use that for anything. You can. And the neat thing is, is that when we initially built out the product, it was meant for single player experiences, right? So think about you work for a company or you're in a classroom, you're going to get some self-study content to do. It might be part of an e-learning module. Great, play a game as well. But over the last year with COVID, we've innovated to really take advantage of the online webinar forum. 
So one of the things that with Jeopardy, with our trivia game, with our Wheel of Fortune game, anyone can facilitate a game for a dozen people, a few hundred people, even up to a thousand people at the same time. And what's really neat about that is I actually encourage you to try this. You can quickly run a session where you can see who's coming in. You can see who's getting things right. You're seeing how fast they're getting things right. And you really kind of make it a much more interactive experience than a passive experience. And that's the whole point. We are all zoomed out at this point. And the reality is we need some sort of modes to engage people throughout our webinars or online meetings. And these games have allowed us to do that from a facilitator standpoint because it requires participation. And quite honestly, it engages people on a level just based off of their competitive nature, their interest in having a little bit of banter with one another. So you play a game, you know, maybe talk about the fact that Steven got it right first or Austin got it right first. And by the way, he got it right in two seconds. And this other person got it wrong. And they've gotten five questions wrong in a row. Let's make fun of them a little bit. Let's give them some incentive to actually come back and participate. Also, so things like the daily double, allowing someone to catch up, allowing these people to look at leaderboards real time. And it just makes meetings and presentations a lot more interactive and a lot more fun. So people can do that, use this during like presentations, actually. I mean, I understand the concept and I think everyone does. Like I could see it on my off time, but you're saying there's a way to maybe even interact it within my business while you're, someone's doing a Zoom call? Exactly. And so we found that you certainly... During this pandemic, the usage has been through the roof as a result of making that mode available. Everyone is on Zoom calls all day long now. And the reality is, is that the more passive they are, the more that you're just talking to people, the more people are going to Zoom out. So we're finding that people are not just using it for training purposes, but they're using it just to engage their colleagues or to engage uh, listeners as they're doing presentations or meetings. And I love watching that. I love watching the stats of the platform because we're quickly seeing that some major companies are using it over and over and over again every day. We're seeing the usage is through the roof. Well, yeah, thank you for summarizing kind of what your company does today. Could you give us a little bit idea of the company size and revenue, and then we'll reel back to how you got started? Yeah, absolutely. So we are about 50 people. We exceeded the $10 million mark this year. We're just shy of $11 million in revenue this year. And we basically have two offices. We're in Stanford, Connecticut, so about 40 minutes north of New York City and Seattle, Washington. Yeah, I know Stanford, Connecticut, only because the office, they said that's where one of their offices was. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, but just saw that episode last night. I think they were talking about that. So A slightly different culture than they have. Yeah, imagine. <laughs> so you actually get stuff done, you're saying. <laughs> we get stuff done, but we also laugh all day long. And I think, you know, like many, we miss being in the office because I think that culture is a really big part of our company. And as this would be indicative with any game company, there's a lot of joking around, a lot of laughing, a lot of creativity and a lot of fun. Have you been able to maintain that at all? Or do you have any suggestions how people might be able to maintain that virtually as best as you can? It's interesting because we have 50 people, we have two offices, and we have about a third of our company is remote. So that has been a big part of our culture anyway, is the remote concept. It's now just unfortunately, as a result of this pandemic, 100% of us are remote. But it wasn't a big leap, right? It was something that certainly we figured out how to get to pretty quickly based on the precedent that was set. We do play a lot of games with each other. We try to do a lot of brainstorming together. We try to do a lot of creative jams together. We are a very flat organization where there's a lot of collaboration. And that collaboration can happen anywhere from game designing to coding to doing visual design. It is a real team effort. 
And so that has been able to be maintained even in this remote environment and quite well. Hey guys, 2021 is looking up. New beginnings means new opportunities to grow your business. If part of your strategy is adding new members to your team, LinkedIn Jobs finds the right person quickly. To make things better, your first job post is free. One of the features that I love about LinkedIn Jobs is how I can quickly find a candidate in my geographic area. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 722 million members worldwide. Getting started is easier than ever with new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly. Post a job with targeted screening questions and LinkedIn will quickly get your role in front of more qualified candidates. Manage job posts and contact candidates from a single view on the familiar LinkedIn.com as functions are streamlined onto one simple screen. And now you can do this all from your mobile device, no matter where the day takes you. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. And now you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash millionaire. Again, that's linkedin.com slash millionaire to post a job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Energetic Austin here again. And you know what? No matter what stage of life you're in, thinking about your financial future can evoke some pretty strong feelings. But did you know that people who work with a financial advisor feel more at ease about their finances? Ended up with 15% more money to spend in retirement on average? Now, thanks to Smart Asset, the service that over a half a million people have trusted to find an advisor, there's a free and easy path to help you find greater financial peace of mind. Smart Asset has built a safe, easy, and convenient tool to find vetted financial advisors in your area. So stop tossing and turning and take action today. Here's how it works. Begin by taking Smart Asset's short quiz which I actually did. And it did raise some further questions and concerns about my own plans. You know, within a few minutes of taking that quiz, Smart Asset will match you with three pre-screened fiduciaries, each legally obligated to act in your best interest and each willing to do a no-commitment financial consultation. They'll also send you a free personalized retirement planning guide with actionable advice so you can feel confident in your next steps. Take control of your financial future with Smart Asset. To receive your free personalized retirement planning report, go to smartasset.com slash inspiration. Your report will provide personalized insights on your retirement readiness. So visit smartasset.com slash inspiration today. Thank you for the rundown. So where would you think, would you like to kind of reel it back to even before you started this business, I guess, what's the best place to start off here? Because I've seen you're going to Oberlin College, which I've never heard of. So I had to look that up. Do you want to start there or you want to start somewhere else? Yeah, well, I'll start there. So I went to Oberlin College. Oberlin is in Ohio, uh, right outside Cleveland. It is actually our family school. So I was like the 11th or 12th person in my family to go. It's been a few generations. And I really love that school because it is as about as progressive as you can be. It was the first school to have African-American students. It was the first school to have female students. It was the first school to have co-ed dorms. It is just a very forward-looking, relatively liberal, progressive school. Uh, really, certainly, it was a place where people spoke their minds. I learned a lot, not just academically, but socially and culturally. 
It also has one of the top music conservatories in the country. So certainly exposed to a lot of really phenomenal things from the arts perspective as well. When I graduated from Oberlin, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Zero. I knew I wanted to do something creative. So early on, I went and worked for an ad agency and then a PR firm for you know, six, seven years of my career. Yeah. What do you think about the PR firm? Well, a few things. It was, I worked for a company called GCI Group, which has now been acquired and it's part of the WPP conglomerate. But at the time, I was initially head of business development for New York and then for the US and then globally. And my exposure as really, albeit a kid, was amazing. I worked initially for the head of the New York office, then the head of the US's and then the head of global, the CEO. And quite honestly, those people remain 25 years later, my mentors. It was an amazing place. I got to travel around the world. I learned about so many different industries. And to me, allowing my eyes to be opened up to so many different industries gave me such a breadth and depth of education and allowed me to be creative and certainly work on my toes because I had to really think about things real time and come up with creative approaches based on that. So I love that. It was an amazing learning ground for me. Yeah. And so how long were you there? Because I know you graduated in 98 from Oberlin. So I worked for ad agency, a company called Amirati Purist Lintas, which is no longer in existence. Well, like many agencies, it was acquired or merged. I was there for about a year. Then I went over to GCI Group, which is part of the gray conglomerate and ultimately bought by WPP. So for about five years. While I was there at the tail end, I got my MBA from Columbia Business School. And I got to say once again, it was not only an amazing place for me to be, but incredibly thankful that they allowed me to work four days a week, get my MBA on Fridays for two years, and didn't dock me pay and certainly allowed me to grow personally and professionally at the same time. It was really fantastic. Seems like quite a workload. Did you have any relationships, whether, I guess, business-wise or friends or wife or whatever? So I was not married at the time. Of course, while I was getting my MBA, it's when I met my wife. Was she your professor? She was not my professor. She is today. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, she teaches me everything I know. But no, I met my wife while I was working full-time and business school full-time. And you know, like many probably guys in their 20s, kind of meet someone that gets kind of serious and you panic. So I did. <laughs> <laughs> so we dated for a little bit and I called it off. That was the worst mistake of my life. And I came crawling back several months later. And I think at the time I said, I just got too much going on. And I think it wasn't that. It was the fact that I realized that this could be my partner for life. And that scared the heck out of me. Well, especially because you're in New York. I mean, I imagine too, right? Most people are like single till their 40s, it seems like in New York. <laughs> it's true. That is true. That is very indicative of New York. But no, I was in my mid-20s when we first met. I was 29 when we got married and haven't regretted a moment since. I have a really phenomenal partner in life and three kids as a result. But yeah, it all started then with my wife and my family. Are all the kids yours? As far as I know. <laughs> just making sure. <laughs> I just had to ask one more irrelevant question and then I'll keep going. So it's from the PR company. Were you making good money there? And did you make more money right after you got done with Columbia University? I was making an okay salary. You know, interestingly enough, the, the program that I was in at Columbia was their executive MBA program. And I was definitely an odd fit for two very real reasons. One is that I was probably about 10 years junior to most people there. Most people were further in, in their career. 
and therefore they were making more money. But more importantly, I stuck at like a sore thumb because I was a marketing guy, a creative guy. And the vast majority of people who go to Columbia and certainly where my program were all finance people. So on one hand, I kind of looked at them with like a deer in headlights thinking, I don't know what the heck you guys are talking about. But ironically, they looked at me the same way because to them, marketing and creativity was kind of a foreign concept. And it was really neat because some of those people I went to school with back then, I am still friendly with today. I've done a lot of business with since, which is, I think, one of the main concepts behind business school is building that network, really grew a strong appreciation for one another as a result. And so when you're there, yeah, because it seems like most business schools that it does come from a finance angle, right? I mean, not even just Columbia, but overall, at least that's my impression. I think that's often the case, certainly the schools in New York, right? Because a lot of the schools, especially the top schools in New York are feeders right into the Wall Street and banks and financial institutions. So I definitely was an outlier, but it was a great opportunity. And ironically, by the way, I just reached out to a former classmate of mine who I haven't spoken to in probably 10 years, maybe 15 years, said, I was just thinking about you because I came across a project that we worked on back in the early 2000s. And I said, well, what project is it? And this was kind of a funny one to me. It was a marketing project and it was, try to pull it up if I can find it easily. It was a marketing project and it was focused on the stories of entrepreneurs and how their careers all began. And we basically did a snapshot on a bunch of people who were known in the media at the time. And the one that we really fleshed out, which I had forgotten all about, was Donald Trump. So it was an Office Max. It was like kind of like a make, it was a pretend Office Max ad campaign. And this all started with his having papers all over his office for all the buildings that he was managing, and it was being too hard to manage. And then it was, he had a series of filing cabinets, which of course, no kid today knows what that is, but a series of filing cabinets where he put all of his paperwork. And then he looked at those series of filing cabinets and he had an epiphany that he needed to start building skyscrapers because, you know, kind of they all look like skyscrapers. And that's where his you know career really took off. It was kind of a joke, but very funny 15, 20 years later to look at something like that. And a guy who at the time was known for The Apprentice ultimately became our president. But to think that we were foreshadowing his career in that ad campaign was kind of funny. And it's full circle now because you're on a podcast with, you know, where I talk to entrepreneurs about how they got started, right? Exactly. So when you came out of grad school there at Columbia, did you work it with the GCI group still? Or did you want to go in a different direction coming out of business school? So I didn't. They were amazing. Once again, this is a good example of mentorship. Shortly after I finished up my MBA, or probably actually before I finished up my MBA, I accepted a job with General Electric. They have these post-MBA management rotation programs around the country, around the world. And my boss at GCI was as supportive and just congratulatory as you could be. So I went to work for GE, spent all about two years there. I worked for three divisions, NBC, their appliances division, and their plastics division in a sales and marketing role. With NBC, I stayed here in New York. With appliances, I was in Louisville, Kentucky. And with plastics, I was up in uh, Massachusetts. But with all jobs, I was traveling around the world and really selling into different markets. And it was an amazing opportunity for me because certainly I had to learn very quickly once again, about a whole bunch of new industries, but I also had to learn skills and how to sell into different industries about products that were basically brand new to me and think about you know, what's the messaging, what's the differentiating factor, what is the pricing that we can do. It was a really neat opportunity in all cases, kind of work directly under the chief marketing officers at each of those divisions of GE. So amazing exposure. 
Is there one thing we might recognize if we were like listening now that you've done with those three assignments? I mean, as far as I don't know if you made commercials or did other marketing things that maybe we could learn from that might help our businesses. So nothing that is a household name, you know, and well, I should say nothing that uh, as a household we would purchase, right? With NBC, I was working on selling in a bunch of ad space for a conglomerate of properties underneath the NBC umbrella. With appliances, I was selling in refrigerators to major retailers. And with plastics, I was selling in plastic to airline industries and to car manufacturers. And, you know, I kind of feel like if you can learn the skill of selling commodities like plastic, you can basically sell anything. So that was a great educational grounds for me. And quite honestly, not only did I learn about those individual products, but I certainly learned about those industries and kind of once again, had to act fast and think on my toes. Were you making a lot more money now that you're out of grad school or no? Yeah. So when you jumped over to that program, my salary about doubled and the opportunity certainly to increase from there was significant. Those management rotation programs give you incredible exposure. You basically do four different roles and then the offshoot is to run a division or a function within one of their businesses. And the money's decent. It's pretty good. But I also quickly realized that that was not the culture for me. I did not want to work in a place that had 300,000 employees. I really was way more entrepreneurial and I didn't see an opportunity for me to grow my own business, my own ideas, but rather just be potentially an executive within a larger organization. And that wasn't very interesting to me. Well, I mean, at the time, did you always think you were going to have your own business and you just wanted some more background experience with some of these bigger companies first before starting your own thing? Well, it's a funny question. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. My grandfather started and ran a supermarket chain, had about 55 supermarkets. It was called Shopwell. It was in the New York surrounding states and ultimately acquired by AMP, major supermarket conglomerate. But you know, watching certainly what he did and certainly watching him grow that and thinking about the influence that he had over people and the perception that people had of him was fairly inspiring, right? My father founded and ran a healthcare consulting firm. My mom founded and ran her own law practice. So to me, it was always in the back of my mind that I want to start something. Had a few more stops along the way, but ultimately got there. And I'm certainly glad I did. Well, thank you for telling me the name of the grocery store because I Googled it and I guess anyone else can. One, two, three, four, five. It's about the sixth one down, six link down. It has articles now. This was from June 4th, 1986. It said AMP to pay blank amount to acquire Shopwell. Do you know how much? No, this is like Jeopardy, like you're uh, what we're doing now. <laughs> do you know how much they have paid to acquire? I do not know. I'm going to say it was in the tens of millions. 64 million in 1986. It's pretty crazy that they can even pull these from the New York Times, these articles. This was like written within the paper that Google was able to pull from it. So yeah, I guess your grandfather did pretty well too, huh? He did do really well. It's incredibly inspiring. It's funny. They talk about the American dream of always wanting to do better than your parents or the generations before. And I, I don't know that I'll ever do that well, but I'm really happy with my path and inspired by those who came before me. Well, you can just hope that the Fed keeps increasing how much money they put out, then it'll be worth less and less. So maybe you'll be worth a hundred <laughs> millions, you know? So I hope, I hope. <laughs> so yeah. And I don't want to brush over too. Yeah. You said your mom and dad also kind of had their own things, like even having the individual practice. Did that inspire you to want to go to grad school? You said your mom was a lawyer. 
My mom was a lawyer. My father was a healthcare consultant. He had his PhD. She had her law degree. I think I knew that I wanted to get an advanced degree. I wanted to try to figure out what my path was and what I could create. And I think that's kind of the theme in my career, right, is whether you're working at an ad agency or a PR firm coming out with campaigns or concepts for other brands, or whether you're working in-house and coming out with something to differentiate the brand that you're running, or you're ultimately building your own product. I wanted to create something. I wanted to create something that engaged people and motivated people and impacted people. And I think that that was the road that I went down. And so as you end up leaving GE and do you start your company then or no? I did not. So I had one more stop before then. My wife and I at the time were in Louisville, Kentucky. In retrospect, I have very fond memories of Louisville, which by the way, no one knows how to pronounce. I think I said it right. But I wanted to return back to New York. I knew that that was the case. And so I started looking at jobs in New York and I started looking at brand manager and brand director jobs and you know whatnot. And I had a few different options. Well, actually I had options of going back into the agency world, which I decided I was going to skip. And certainly some of the salaries that were being offered were quite nice. You see people kind of pivot back and forth between the agency world and the brand world. And once you've been on the client side, agencies want you to work for them because you come to the table with even more validity. They want you to bring GE to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. Well, not only do they want you to bring your past client or your past brand to them as a client, but also they want you to be able to go into the boardroom for GE's competitor and say, well, when I ran marketing for appliances at GE and people immediately kind of look up and they say, oh, okay, this is the real deal. I need to be working with this guy. So I had a handful of agencies that were recruiting me to come back and work in that world. I started talking to folks like Unilever to run things like Dove Soap, but I ended up taking a job with Atari. And I always kind of joke because at the time I was in my early 30s and I hadn't probably played video games since I was in my early teens. So my wife looked at me kind of puzzled and said, you know, you don't play video games and that's what they do. Why would you ever take a job at Atari? To me, it was really crystal clear. One is it was at the time just an incredible nostalgic brand that people, certainly of my generation and a little older and certainly even a little younger, hold near and dear to their heart. But the second reason was that they are marketing really interesting product, a category. When you're marketing video games, there are so many, one, you have really nice budgets to play with. And two, you have the opportunity to really experiment and create interesting content and try to engage gamers on a different level. To me, it was a no brainer. I wanted to head over there and try a bunch of things and see what stuck and see what I could learn. So I took a job over there as director of marketing at Atari. I was looking for some sort of community where I could get some ideas on business. I could find motivation, inspiration to pursue my own things. I've technically had my own business for 12 years now, but it's a really small operation and I'm trying to do something bigger. Being told just go out there and do it is very helpful. And that's why I joined. I mean, and at this time, just to get an idea, because I legitimately have no clue, how much would you make in that, your type of role there? So I think his starting salary was, I'm trying to remember, it was maybe about 150000 something like that. I, can, I was guessing between one hundred and two hundred. Okay, so that's what you're coming back. You were spot on. You were spot on. <laughs> I just say that every time I guess so something. That's exactly what I was thinking. No, I, I really had that in my mind. But to me, again, the reason I bring it up is like sometimes when you live in New York, it's like hard to figure out, especially just because cost of living's higher. It's like how much is a lot in New York or versus Louisville, Kentucky, right? So. Yep, absolutely. Cost of living and whatnot. And so was your wife working too? And did she want to go back to New York? So my wife was working. Actually, I'm trying to remember that stage. Interestingly enough, when we were our last stop at GE, 
I was working obviously for the appliances division in Louisville, Kentucky. And she, for six months, she had been working for a long time prior to that, but for that six months that we're in Louisville, she was still working with Colgate Palmolive and she was traveling every week. So we'd just see each other on the weekends, which was really hard. Got a lot of frequent flyer miles out of it, but we, you know, seeing each other two days a week as a married couple was challenging. So yeah, she came back. If I'm not mistaken, when we came back to New York, she did a career change. And really uh, at the time she pivoted over to the agency side because she'd been on the client side for years. She took a job at a healthcare agency and that's been her career for the last 20 years or so. So she wanted to move back. That was what I was wondering. Cause sometimes, especially if you're moving with a couple, I'm just wondering how you go through those conversations, especially like, you know, for a new job, I just haven't had to do that. So it seems like she welcomed it. She did. Yeah. I mean, I think that my wife is actually from the Midwest. She grew up in uh, Sioux City, Iowa, but even growing up from day one, I think she, the media kind of always made her want to live in New York. So she spent you know, her college years down in Washington, D.C. and uh, moved up here as soon as that was over. And New York is definitely her home and kind of where her heart is. If you thought Louisville was hard to say, then Sioux City, that's not S-I-O-U-X. I didn't even know. I don't think I've ever even tried pronouncing it, to be honest. I've seen it before. <laughs> you mean, mean Sioux? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm just like, that city in Iowa, so. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so then you go to Atari, you're there, I guess you still have no children? No children yet, and I had a lot of fun, kind of worked, burned the midnight oil there. I ran, as I mentioned, a whole bunch of brands, Dungeons & Dragons, Winter Nights, Driver, Test Drive Unlimited, but one of the things that I was doing as a side project while I was there, and it was really just because I was interested in it, was exploring how in-game advertising worked, and thinking about how can I get brands into some of the you know, titles that made sense, all the driving titles, the lifestyle games that we were building. How can I get brands to spend money and basically get into our games, either in product placement or interactive experiences? And so I sold a whole bunch of brands to be in our games. And that was kind of a new concept at the time, barely existed in the industry. And then I went to some of those brands and I said, hey, we're Atari. We've been making games for you know, 25, 30 years now. How about we start to build some games for you? And so we started building some small little games for brands on the side, for Chevy, for American Express, for Lexus. And it was just incremental revenue for Atari. And that was interesting to me and kind of was the aha moment that there was an opportunity to take brands and take games and marry them and do something really magical. And do you think you had that thought process because you were with an agency before and you're like, hey, maybe I can go to these brands and maybe we can, since we know how to do video gaming, we can show them that we can make them some simple games? I think it was a combination of talking to agencies, certainly thinking from that mindset, talking to agencies, talking to brands that made sense, talk to brand managers. I mean, in essence, that's what my role was. My role was to represent some of the Atari brands. I was thinking to myself, well, if I represented Chevy, how would I want to actually engage consumers? And uh, you know, what are the different venues to do so? The reality is that the vast majority are very passive. You can watch videos, you can look at inter you can look at ads, but if you can have an interactive experience with the brand, it's all that much more powerful in my mind. And so I started just picking up the phone and talking to people about that. People were happy to engage, and quite honestly, the money we were asking for to execute little programs was dropping the bucket for them. So an easy yes. So what would it be like a couple hundred thousand or something? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You could probably do something. I'm trying to remember some of the initial programs we did, but anywhere from about a hundred to $500,000. Can you give one game, I guess, because you brought up Chevy. So did you work with Chevy? We worked with Chevy. Probably the best one that we did while we were at Atari was for our driving games. We put a whole bunch of car manufacturers into our games. That made sense. 
We also put a whole bunch of lifestyle brands for clothing designers, Ben Sherman, Mark, I remember his name, I'll come back to it, but a whole bunch of fashion brands into our games. But then I'll give you an example of some of the stuff that we did that was really interesting. We approached American Express about doing a program called Stop Pong. So you know, Pong is one of the most historical games under the Atari umbrella. And we knew that they had Andy Roddick as their spokesperson. And we thought, obviously, there's a connection between Pong and tennis. And so we did a whole campaign with them, a TV campaign, a game campaign that was figuring out if you could play as Andy Roddick, could you beat Pong? And it was really amazing TV campaign they did. And then we built an interactive game around it. And it was all about getting people to sign up for new credit cards. And the results were amazing. We had, at the time, I think hundreds of thousands of people played, but they had a 5% sign up on credit cards and the program paid for itself in droves. And that's pretty creative. That's I like that. That's smart as far as like, okay, yeah, they're already representing a tennis player who's really good. And then you're like, okay, this is how we can connect them. And it's a simple program or game, right? You could set up for them to make it for American Express versus anybody else. So Exactly. And I think that that's really important that one, any game that you're building feels contextually relevant, right? The last thing you want to do is have something feel forced. So it needs to feel unique. It needs to feel contextually relevant, which is, by the way, the same thing we're always selling with in-game advertising is you know, you're not going to, trying to think of a good example, you're not going to put some random product into a driving game, or you're certainly not going to put a random product into a magical world like Dungeons and Dragons or Neverwinter Nights. It needs to feel right to the gamer. We did a whole bunch of sports games, and you think about those arenas, and those are ripe for any type of advertising, but it needs to feel absolutely appropriate as opposed to forced. And certainly the Stop Pong one was spot on because it tied into something that they were doing. It was part of their brand voice. And it certainly engaged consumers on a meaningful level. And so you were at Atari there for two years? There for two years. And when I started working on some of those custom projects, it was a combination of me and at the time, the director of licensing for Atari. And at the end of the day, I came from the creative side. He came from the contractual side. We figured out how do we sell this in. And that guy, Joe McDonald, ended up becoming my business partner. We left after about two years and started the game agency together with that similar concept in mind is how do you take brands and how do you take games and merge them to tell really compelling stories and engage participants. And when you left, were you like, hey, were you just not feeling appreciated at Atari? Or did you have, again, that dream that we kind of talked about that you're like, hey, now's the time for us to do this. We see that people want to buy this and we should start our own business in this instead of doing it underneath Atari? Yeah, it's a good question. So there were a few things. One, Atari was not really interested in that business model. And that, I think, made sense. They have an amazing brand. They have games to produce and sell. And it was, albeit making money for them, but it was a distraction, right? That's not their business model. Two, I had the entrepreneurial spirit and certainly really wanted to jump at building something of my own. And three, I had no kids. And I thought, if I'm going to do it, this is the time to do it. Let me leave a well-paying job to make no money for a few years and see, <laughs> see what happens. And it, it was the right decision, clearly, you know, years later. Well, what'd your wife say when you're ready to do that? She said, I don't want to talk about this. And I don't think she really wanted to talk about my business for at least a solid two or three years. <laughs> That's like me at home right now. <laughs> I used to make money. And then like ever since I met her, I'm like, ah, sorry, babe. <laughs> so we'll just talk about it. It's a funny thing. And, you know, she is risk adverse. 
So lucky her to marry me. She likes to think about things. I like to jump in with both feet. And she was really uncomfortable with the idea of me leaving. And quite honestly, in retrospect, and now as a father of three, I got to say that my partner had more courage than I ever did because he had two kids at home and he left his job and he was you know, living uh, right outside New York City in an expensive neighborhood and certainly took the risk that was well above and beyond mine. And I didn't appreciate it at the time because I was in the mindset of a you know single guy and didn't realize the responsibilities that come with being a parent of a few. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. I could imagine a lot of us listening now, even if you're married, you're like, okay, as long as I don't have kids, like you're thinking that'd be my same thought process. That's why I kind of started the podcast. I'm like, well, if I'm ever going to make a move, I better do it now. If I don't feel like doing the same thing over and over, it's like, if you have kids and you're doing it, then I would feel like I'd have to save up a lot more money. So I guess that kind of brings me to another relevant question. How much money did you have saved up when you decided to make the jump? Because I imagine you said you didn't make money for a couple of years, but I imagine you didn't know that going in. Yeah, so I probably I had I want to guess somewhere between a hundred and two hundred thousand dollars in my bank. So it's not an insignificant amount, but not a lifelong bank account. Not in New York City is that enough to you know last you for decades. You can live a decade in Jacksonville. You can, you can, <laughs> you can, you can. And so I, I don't mean to say that lightly, right? At the end of the day, I know I'm just joking around too. I think everyone understands that's even what I brought up earlier, especially when, like you're saying, you're in New York, right? So it depends on how much you know you have to put into the company to get started. I always ask this to bring out like some people need more money or less money depending on the type of company you're going to start up and understanding your risk. So I appreciate you being open and telling us. So thank you. We also just decided at the time, my wife and I, that we didn't need to spend a lot of money, right? We kept things really simple and we obviously only had each other to support. My wife luckily was making a good salary and we relied heavily on her. And by the way, almost 14 years later, I've never paid for insurance for myself because I've used insurance from her business. Even with you know 50 employees, I don't cover my own insurance. Her company does. So kind of always thought about how do we cover for each other. And I also think about the fact that the company at the time, there were several years that we did not know how to run a company properly. And there were several times that I had to loan the company money out of my bank, find twenty dollars or $30,000 and just deposit it in the company account real time because we needed it immediately. Well, yeah. Can we jump into details of like, I guess, day one, even starting off your, the game agency, if you will? Yeah. So early on, we tried to figure out what was our niche and what, where were we going to play a role? So our initial approach was let's find some interesting video games out there and let's try to see if we can sell in those games to brands from an in-game advertising standpoint. And so, you know, we're thinking about what games are coming to market on console and how can we tell compelling stories and sell them in to major brands who are looking to do product placement. And that was hard. That was really hard to do because you're one creating a market, if you will. There were a few companies out there doing that, but it wasn't it wasn't mainstream by any stretch. The second thing we were doing was going to those same brands and saying, oh, well, if you're not interested in doing in-game advertising, we can build something custom for you. And we built some interesting custom things for Lexus, for McDonald's, for Hasbro, Heineken, marketing games, if you will, early on. But not only were we selling the concept, but then we were quickly pivoting and trying to figure out, okay, now who can we bring in to help us do this, right? We were basically glorified producers, if you will, at the time. Today, obviously, we have a full team in-house that does all this stuff, but we hadn't hired people on yet to do this. So we had to kind of sell in the vision and then find team, teams who could help execute against it. Even to try to get a visual, because that was a summary of your problems of like, you know, being able to generate revenue. Did you end up like 
renting an office down the street from Atari or can you visually just tell us like what it was like when it was just the two of y'all when you got started? Because I always just think that's fun, even reminiscing about the first three months or whatever of getting started. So the first six or nine months or so, I worked in my apartment. I lived in a two-bedroom apartment. My partner lived up in Connecticut in a house and we both worked from home. My wife would leave the house. I'd be in my pajamas. She'd come home. I'd still be in my pajamas because I was just pounding the phone and trying to close deals and would sometimes forget to eat meals and stuff like that because I was just focused, focused, focused on trying to get this thing off the ground. And I realized that not only uh, was I becoming a hermit because I wasn't talking to anybody you know, in person or seeing anyone, I should say, but I, I just needed that social interaction at the time, right? So I convinced my partner that despite the fact that we weren't making a ton of money yet, I said, you know, I think that we would be a lot more productive if we were in the same place, probably a little more emotionally fulfilled if we were in the same place. So we agreed. I went back to GCI Group, which was my former PR firm. I said, hey, do you have a few offices that I could rent from you? And sure enough, they said, yeah, we got some offices. So we rented some office space from them. And by the way, uh, interesting enough, and there's like, I have probably 10 of these stories, but they had around five floors or something like that in the, in the building they were in. And we were renting some space in a floor that they had, they were only using about half of. And the other half of that was owned by or being rented by another agency. The CFO for that agency talked to us enough times and he was like, ah, I don't want you in our space. I don't want you here. I don't want you there. And then he said, but by what, what, what do you guys do? And we said, well, we're in video games. He goes, oh, my son wants to be in video games. Can he have an internship with you guys? So not only did we give that guy an internship, but that kid who's no longer a kid ended up working for us for five years. And it's a good, good, just being in the right place at the right time and meeting the right people. So he did let you on his floor, I guess. He eventually let us on the floor once he realized what we did and <laughs> the right. fact that it would be, uh, it would help his son out. It was a win-win. And I think that's a good hack for anybody too. So you were at home for six months or so? Six, nine months, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I can feel you on that, especially people dealing with that now, right? Just the understanding of like social isolation or whatnot. But you can always go back. Well, if you end on a good note, exactly what you're saying, This is, I could probably do the same thing. There's a company that I worked for just coming out of college where I know they get, they've got extra just one unit offices that, hey, can I pay a couple hundred bucks a month and just rent an office space for you? So even if you're a one or two person team and you feel like you're not, if you're having issues of being motivated or even getting up or trying to figure out working hours or just need to get out of your house. There's always opportunities that you could call on businesses that rent whole floors that they probably more than likely have extra office space that they'd be glad to even generate just a little bit. And that way you're also seeing just other people working. I think that kind of always helped my mindset when I saw other people coming in and out of the office. What do you think about that? It's a win-win, right? At the end of the day, those companies, if they're sitting with idle space, they, they're able to reduce their expenses. You obviously get a place to be. It might be a temporary or it might be a year, but it certainly is beneficial to all parties. And the nice thing is, is not only did we have a place where we got space and relatively inexpensive, but also met some of our early employees. And finally, you know, just as a result of being in a space where another agency was, we started picking up some business from them because those conversations just naturally happened, right? So yeah, it was, it was it was a good way of starting. Have you had a chance to listen to any of the past group calls or anything like that yet? Yeah, I've listened to a couple of them. Even if somebody had a business that was completely unrelated to anything I was doing, they were still throwing in invaluable nuggets of information just constantly. So I've been listening and you know I'd like to start getting in on some of the group calls. I'd like to start really engaging with other people in the community and just learning and devouring as much as I can. Did you even think about that at the time? Like, hey, this might be a way for us to drum up business or no? I don't know. It's a really good question. I think one of the themes in my career has been 
most people that I meet along the way, I stay in touch with. And not necessarily from just a sales standpoint. That's, I'm not, I think I am reasonably good at sales, but I'm not your, at least I don't think I am your typical salesy guy, right? I'm not dialing for dollars, but I have, I think I just build nice relationships with people. And so people who I worked with for five years, they saw that I was doing my own thing. They were curious what I was doing. They were trying to figure out if there's something that was in it for them or for their clients or whatever. And it naturally led to opportunities. So same thing, people who I went to school with at business school, naturally led to opportunities. As long as you kind of keep those doors open and those conversations flowing, you never know what's going to pop up. And if we go over in like detail, would you be interested in doing like a part two where we can just dive in more in the game agency? Yeah, happy to. Happy to. Is that all right? Because that's what I've been doing a little bit lately. And I think a lot of people have liked it even more. That way, if I do a second part, I just dive in real details like the stuff we're talking about. And I feel like if I go on now that I'll probably end up squishing, you know, everything that you're able to go through. Is that okay? Happy to. Yeah. Well, yeah, like I said, I appreciate you coming on and telling part one. If anyone wanted to say thank you for doing this, I guess, part one of the interview, is there a best way for them to reach out and say thank you for doing it? Yeah, by all means, my email address is Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at thegameagency.com. Great. Well, thank you, Stephen. and look forward to getting the details of how you did your business here on part two. So thanks again for spending the time. Well, thanks for having me. Look forward to digging in a lot further. Hey guys, Energetic Austin here. I hope you enjoyed that interview. The second part of the interview is actually available right now for all our Patreon members. Here's a preview of it. And that's okay, at least in my mind, in my partner's mind. That is the path towards building a solid product, a solid business with a solid team. But I'd say over the last you know, few years, we are at a really stable place as a company, profitable place as a company. It's incredibly rewarding to see. I kind of do joke that it took a good 10 years to figure out how to get there, but the journey has been fantastic and can't wait for the next 10, 15 years because I think that there's the, the horizon is going to be even better. So become a Patreon member to get part two right now. And by the way, if you're one of those listeners that have checked out, I don't know, like every episode on our feed, well, would you mind emailing me and let me know why you're not a Patreon member? Just email me at austin at millionaire-interviews.com. Again, just email me at austin at millionaire dash interviews dot com.